there in Matthew 19, we read about uh, one of the accounts of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is one of those uh, characters that you find in scripture that's really, really interesting. And uh, when you look at uh, all of the gospel accounts about this young man, it's that there are a lot of lessons that we can learn uh, from that. But the one thing that I wanted to, to focus on this evening is that that one question that he asked there in verse 20. What do I still lack? Or what lack I yet, as King James says. You know, when this man came to Jesus, he came to the right source, and he asked the right question. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, the law of Moses was still in effect at that time, so Jesus essentially told him, keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Uh, and that's one of those things. It may sound like a uh, kind of a silly question, but at that time it really wasn't. You had a, a lot of uh, disagreement among the various schools of the Jews as to which were the most important commandments to keep. And Jesus told him, you know, well, don't kill, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and your father. And uh, he said, well, I've done that. I've done that. So you have to ask the question, why did he ask the question? What do I still lack? Now, Sometimes when people ask a question like that, they are not looking for information. They're looking for validation. And what I mean by that is they're not really looking for you to tell them that they lack something in particular. What they're looking for is for you to say, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's great. You don't have a problem at all. That's what they want to hear. Now, I don't think that that's the case with this young man, because if it were the case, when Jesus told him, keep the commandments, he would have said, great, that's what I've been doing all my life. I'm in great shape. And he would have been happy, and he would have gone on his way. But he didn't do it. What do I still lack? Now, to me, what that says is you have somebody who knows there's a problem. They know, they may not know exactly what the problem is, they may not know how serious the problem is, but they know there is one. They've looked into their own heart and they think, there is an issue here, there's something that's just not right, and I need to find out what it is. And so he comes to Jesus and asks him, what do I need to do, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I keep the commandments, what do I still need to do? There was something else. And and that's one of those things, self-examination is a really uncomfortable thing. It's one of those things that can be uh, very trying oftentimes. I I don't know about you, but I'm a perfectionist, which is really bad because I'm lazy too. And if you want things to be perfect, but at the same time you're too lazy to make them that way, you know, you're never gonna be happy. Uh, but when you start to look at yourself 
and all human beings are going to find themselves in this position, there's always something that's not exactly right. There's always something that could be better than it is. There's always something that you need to work on. Now, people react in a couple of different ways about that. And one of the things that people oftentimes do, uh, and this is the secret to a happy life, be really, really careful who you compare yourself to. Because a lot of times that's what people do. There are things in my life, having looked at my life, being kind of uncomfortable with the, w the way things are, knowing that I'm not all that I could or should be, you know, what am I going to do about this? Look at people that are worse than I am. Because that's going to make me feel a whole lot better about myself. Yes, I'm not what I ought to be, but there's a lot of people out there that are even worse. And so that, comparatively speaking, puts me up on a higher level makes me feel better about myself. The problem with that is, is oftentimes we, we try to find people that are worse than us, but they're not that much worse. They're oftentimes kind of the same. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's a matter of how you interpret some things. I've said one of the things that you find in, in politics a lot is people will say, well, when we do it, it's tactics. When they do it, it's dirty pool. Uh, there's a guy I've seen, he, he does a thing where he talks about it, things not aging well, and he'll find a politician who on one occasion says one thing, and on another occasion they say exactly the opposite. They say, oh, look how terrible these people are for doing this, and then, oh, we're so wonderful because we're doing exactly the same thing. You know, it, 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 it's hypocritical. In Romans chapter 2, Beginning in verse 1, Paul said, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, if we point the finger at someone Oftentimes, we're guilty of the same thing, maybe not to the same level, and maybe not exactly the same thing, but something similar. So, you know, if we're trying to make ourselves feel better by pointing out that somebody else is worse than we are, we're going to have a serious problem. And if, if not in this life, we'll definitely have a serious problem in the next one. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Now, Jesus is not saying that we cannot judge. A little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about judging false prophets. What he's talking about is a hypocritical kind of judgment. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. One of the most uncomfortable things in Scripture is the principle that God will treat us the same way we treat other people. When it comes to, especially in this case, hypocritical judgment, if we're going to hold people to a standard that we ourselves cannot measure up to, God will turn that standard around on us and say, this is how you were judging other people how do you like it when that same standard is applied to you? And we won't like it. 
but he will take our own standards and turn them around on us. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He says, we can help our brother remove a speck from his eye, but we've got to make sure that we don't have a plank, a two-by-four in our own eye before we do it. Clean up our own act first, and then we can help somebody else. We need to take care of our own problems before we start working on trying to correct somebody else's problems. And we have a responsibility, we have a responsibility to help each other, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to clean up our own act before we try to do that. Over in uh, Galatians chapter 6, in verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Okay, we have an obligation. If I know that you have some kind of a problem, some kind of a spiritual problem, I, as a Christian, have an obligation to try to help you with that. But he goes on and says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. I have to be careful how I do it. I can't go to somebody else and say, well, you've got a real problem and I'm going to straighten you out. I don't go at it that way. It's, I think you have a problem. If you do, can I help? Is this something I can help you with? Because I want to help you with it. Not so I can go around and tell everybody else I know about it, but so I can help you get back on a path to heaven. I had a, uh, uh, an instructor one time. I, took, I took, uh, went to vocational school a long, long time ago, and the instructor was a, uh, he was a character. Uh, is the best way to put it. Uh, but if you were about to do something wrong, you know, have you ever had the feeling that people were watching you? You just kind of feel uncomfortable. You know, somebody's got an eye on me. Well, if you were in that class and you were about to do something wrong and you looked up and looked around and everybody in the class was looking at you, then you knew you were doing something wrong. Because what the instructor would do is he would go around to everybody in the class and he would say, look what stupid's about to do. And everybody would be standing there looking at you. He wouldn't tell you. There was one poor guy that was running a drill bit backwards uh, on the machines that we had. If you went from high range to low range, the rotation went the other way. And he forgot it. And so he's trying to drill a big hole in something, and, but the drill bit's running backwards and it won't cut that way. And he'd go sharpen the drill bit, he'd come back, try it again, still wouldn't work, go sharpen the drill bit, come back, try it again, still wouldn't work. And the instructor had gone to everybody in the place and told them, look what stupid's doing. And everybody in there is, would you please look where this thing is going? <laughs> would you please flip it the other way? And somebody finally distracted the instructor while somebody else went by him and told him, reverse it. And he finally got it. But Christians can't be like that. You know, if, if I go to you and tell you I think you've got a problem, or if you come to me and tell me I have a problem, it's not my business to go tell everybody else. It's my business to help you with it if I can, uh, 
but keep it to myself. I don't need to tell anybody else. This is one of those things that needs to be solved at the lowest possible level. So if we're going to restore such a one, we do it in a spirit of gentleness. And he says, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You could find yourself in the same position someday. And bear that in mind. I could be in the same shape someday. So try to bear that in mind when you're talking to other people. It's always easier to look at other people than it is to look at ourselves. And if we can make them look worse, that makes us feel better. But the problem is it's a false sense of security because we haven't improved ourselves at all. And we need to do that. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul said, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And as uncomfortable as it oftentimes is, that ought to be a regular thing that we do. Am I doing the right thing? Am I acting the way a Christian should? Am I improving? Am I growing? Am I better? You know, one of the sad things is that oftentimes we seem to think that the whole process of being a Christian ends about the time you get out of the baptistry, and it doesn't. That's when it starts. That's the end of one process and the beginning of another one. Because once you become a Christian, there are a lot of things you don't know or a lot of things that you may not be good at a lot of things you need to be better at. And that's when you need to start getting better at those things. Over in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrew writer had been talking uh, to his readers about their lack of growth. In uh, chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He says that you should have been growing by this time, and you're not. He says you need to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ and let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says you should have been teachers by now, and you're not. He said not only that, you've forgotten what you did know. You've been going backwards. Instead of making progress, you have regressed. You're going the wrong way. And he said, you need to get over that. You need to start growing. You need to start being teachers. And he says, we need to leave all of these elementary things, go on to the meat of the word. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those. And this is really important. When you look at the context, you know, if you think, well, if I don't grow, it's not that big of a deal. You know, maybe I'll get around to it someday, but it's not that big of a deal. Chapter 6, verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. He said, you should have been advancing in the faith and you have not now you need to start because if you don't 
if you continue to regress, if you continue to go backwards, it will eventually get to the point where you can't get back where you were anymore. It will be impossible to bring you back. You can't be renewed again to repentance because you've gone so far backwards. And that is one of the things that we need to bear in mind. There comes a time that every Christian goes through this where you, you kind of back up a little bit. Back in the church of God, they used to call it backsliding. You know, you used to be better, now you're a little bit worse. You've, you've not been quite as faithful in your attendance. You've not been doing as much Bible study as you know you ought to do. Uh, you haven't been doing this or you haven't been doing that like you know you should. Everybody runs into those times. But what you need to remember is that once you realize that you are, once you realize that you're going backwards, you need to make a real effort to stop that and start going back the right direction. Because if it continues, you can finally go back to a point where you can't get back where you should be. It's not possible to do anymore. And it's one of those things, you know, sometimes people, uh, I would start the procrastinators of America, and I've been thinking about doing it for ages. One of these days, we're going to get around to it. And so if you get an invitation in the mail someday, you know, let me know as soon as you get the chance. People think, I'll do this someday. Well, the problem about someday is it never gets here. And the problem with I'll do it tomorrow is eventually you run out of tomorrows. And if you think, well, I know I'm not the kind of Christian I ought to be, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to start working on that tomorrow, and then you die tonight, where are you at? You need to be careful about that. We need to grow. We need to be better. We need to look at ourselves and tell that we are better than we used to be. That's the direction we need to be going. And, and we need to take criticism properly. We need to take differences of opinion properly. Uh, I mentioned this morning that one of the things that doesn't seem that we're able to do in this country anymore is have a discussion. People just want to yell at each other. And you will never learn anything that way. You may win an argument, but you're not going to learn anything. We need to be able to have a discussion with people. And we need to be able to discuss things even when they're pointing at us and saying, you know, you're wrong. Well, am I? You know, convince me that I am. Let's have a discussion about this. And you can either convince me that I'm wrong or I'll try to convince you that you're wrong. You know, but we'll discuss it and see if we can come to some kind of a meeting of the minds. We'll talk about it. You know, think about some of the, the characters that you read about in the New Testament. If they, were, if they were unwilling to accept the fact that they might be wrong about something. Take Apollos, for example, in, in Acts chapter 18. You read about Apollos from Acts chapter 18 on as being an extremely effective preacher. Uh, he and Paul sort of worked in tandem a lot of the time when you're talking about Corinth, uh, some of the other places in that area. One would be there, he would leave, and then the other one would be there. They worked together really well, even though they didn't actually work together. But now Apollos was preaching and doing an extremely good job of it, but the problem was he only knew the baptism of John. 
he didn't realize that that was no longer in effect. He was absolutely convinced that what he was teaching was true. And it no longer was. So you have Priscilla and Aquila who take him aside and they talk to him. And they explain things to him. And the next thing you read about is Apollos is going out and he is, he is confounding the Jews. He is an extremely eloquent man. He is a powerful, effective preacher. Because he didn't say, well, how dare you tell me I'm wrong? You need to be willing to accept the fact that you might be wrong about something. Look at Saul of Tarsus. Now, he's a, he is a, a, a very unusual character. In Acts chapter 23, in verse 1, he makes the statement that he had lived in all good conscience until that day. Boy, that's a, that's a strong statement to make, to say that you have lived in all good conscience. That is a really strong statement to make. He says, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an up-and-coming man among the Hebrews. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great doctors of the law. He met the, the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he found out that he had been wrong. And he says, Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? I was wrong about this. I was absolutely convinced I was right, and I was wrong. What do you want me to do? And you know that this, this weighed heavily on him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he, he calls himself chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. Even though he thought he was right, he was wrong, and it bothered him. But sometimes we need to be able to, to decide, you know, yes, I'm wrong. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the Bereans they accepted the word with all readiness. And that is a really unusual trait, again, especially when you're talking about in, in our world today. They listened to what Paul had to say. Now remember, these were Jews. Paul's habit was to go to the synagogue and talk to the people there because they already believed in the one true God. They were already familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, so, you know, half the battle's already done. He just goes to the Old Testament scriptures and proves that the prophecies there referred to Jesus. So many of them didn't want to hear that, though. We can't stand the thought that we are not God's chosen people anymore, that Gentiles are just as acceptable to God as we are. I mean, just prior to Acts chapter 17, you read about his efforts in Thessalonica, and the people there did not want to hear this at all. As a matter of fact, they followed him to Berea to cause problems because they hated the message so bad. But the Bereans listened. They accepted the word with all readiness, but they didn't take Paul's uh, unsupported word for it. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what they were being told was true. Now, if, if somebody tells you something, you can listen don't take their unsupported word for it. Go look in the Bible and see if they're telling you the truth or not. And then if they are, you do like the Bereans did. You accept it. They search the scriptures daily. This is new doctrine. We've never heard this before. 
this is something kind of strange. We, we, we don't know really what to make of it, but we're going to listen to you. But then we're going to go and we're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to see if you're telling us the truth or not. And now think about it this way, and this is one of the things I think makes it really remarkable. They didn't have their own copy of the scriptures. Scriptures then were hand-copied very, very carefully, very labor-intensive. They were extremely expensive. Very few people could own even one scroll of the Old Testament scriptures. So what they were having to do is they were having to go back to the synagogue and use the scrolls that they had there. So you have a bunch of, it's exactly like this. Say we only had one copy of the Bible, and it was here. You know, kind of like they used to do back in the medieval times where they chained it to the pulpit. But we had one copy, and it was here. And somebody's been teaching us something we've never heard before, and we all agree, you know, after work, when we get through with supper, we're going back to the church building, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to look through the Bible, and we're going to see if he's telling us the truth or not. You know, how many days would we do that before we decided this isn't worth the effort anymore? Well, they thought it was worth the effort, and they did it. And the very next verse says, therefore, many of them believed because they accepted the fact that they might not be right in what they believed, that what Paul was saying could be true. And they were willing to, to, to look at it and see, is this right is this not? You know, over in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word will tell you what you think, not what you think you think, or not what you would like to think that you think, but it will tell you what you are thinking. If you're going to be honest about it, it will reveal your motivations. It's one of the great things about the Bible. It's one of the reasons that we have the Old Testament, too. Uh, sometimes people say, well, why do we even bother with the Old Testament? I don't know why we've got that thing. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We shouldn't even have it. One of the things it does is it tells you how God has interacted with people in the past, and you can look at a lot of those characters, and you can see the kind of people they were, the kind of things that they did. You know, just, just recently, we've been looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul and the Amalekites, one of my absolute favorite passages in the whole Old Testament, because if you look at the way King Saul was acting, that is just almost by the book the way people are. Close is good enough. I was told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Well, I did most of what God told me to do, and close is good enough. I'm good enough. I have, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. No, you haven't. Sure, I have. No, you haven't, and this is why I know you haven't. Why is this man here? Where did these animals come from? Oh, well, uh, we did most of what God wanted us to do, and we had a really good reason for not doing the rest. You know, go through that whole thing and put yourself in Saul's place. That's the way people act, and the Bible tells you that. That's exactly the way they act today. People haven't changed a bit, not one little bit. 
Don't believe all these people that tell you that man has evolved. They haven't. If anything, they've gone backwards. I think people used to be a lot smarter than they are now. But Saul is, is a blueprint for the way people oftentimes act. That's why we have the Old Testament. So if you, if you look in God's word, it will give you some, some insight into what you're doing and why you're doing it. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What are you thinking? What are you intending to do? It'll help tell you those things. You know, in James chapter 1, in verse 23, James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. That is where the problem comes in. The Bible is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will tell us what we think. But if we're not going to pay attention, it's not going to help. We have to look into the mirror of God's word and see what kind of a person we really, really are. You know, one of the things that, that we see, especially, uh, at, at least to me, uh, over the last few years, is definitions are changing. And that's, that's the difference between man's standard of right and wrong and God's standard of right and wrong. God's standard doesn't change. Man's standard does. And over the last several years, things have been changing a lot. Uh, I, I've said this before, and the older I get, the more obvious it becomes. But, I mean, take television, for example. I don't watch it. I don't even watch the news hardly anymore. Marcia has to just threaten me to get me to turn on the weather. Uh, but there are things. Uh, I was flipping channels once, and uh, I went by one show, Two and a Half Men, and I'm like, you're kidding me. That's on primetime television? If they had done that back in the 60s, whoever the producer of that show was would have got lynched. There would have been an outraged mob saying, how dare you pollute the minds of our children? And they'd have strung them up to the nearest lamppost. And we don't think a thing about it. Things have changed. God's standard of right and wrong doesn't. So if you, if you look into the word, but you're not a doer of it, you deceive yourself. Anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does." When you examine yourself in the light of God's word, it's going to be uncomfortable oftentimes because God's word tells us to be perfect and we're not. And God really doesn't expect us to be. But he does expect us to try to be. And when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and we see that we have problems, we're supposed to start trying to work on the problems, not just turn away from the mirror and forget all about it. Start trying to correct the problem. Do something to make ourselves better than we were. And one of the things that you've got to remember, and, and this, one, this one can be an issue at times as well. I've known people from time to time who just seem to think that you know, there is no way that I can do this. I know what God's word requires of me. And I'm just not up for it. 
I can't do it. I can't be that kind of a person. You don't know that really until you try. But one of the things, one of the big differences that you find is the difference between Peter and Judas. Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27. You know, we all know the story how Jesus told Peter that before the cock crowed, he would deny him three times. Well, Peter evidently forgot about that. And three times, he said, I don't know the man. I don't know him. I don't know him. I, I, he cursed and swore, saying, I do not know the man. Matthew 26, 74. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out, and he wept bitterly. He told me what was going to happen, and I let it happen anyway. How could I do that? How could I be that weak? And he wept bitterly. You talk about somebody that was extremely sorry for what they had done. That was Peter. But now take Judas. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, the thing is, is under the law of Moses, if you gave testimony against someone and it turned out it was false testimony, you had to take his penalty. So Judas, by coming in and saying, I have sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood, Judas was supposed to take Jesus's place. He was the one that was supposed to go to the cross, and Judas knew it. By doing this, I am condemning myself. And he did it anyway, because he was remorseful. What did the chief priest say? What's that to us? See to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. He was sorry for what he had done, but not the right way. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's the difference between Peter and Judas. So yes, you're sorry that you're not what you ought to be, but how do you react to that? Do you say, well, I can't do this. I might as well give up and quit. Or do you say, I'm not what I ought to be. That means I need to work at it harder. I need to pray harder for God to help me in my efforts. You know, one of the things I mentioned early on was uh, there in uh, Matthew chapter 7 where, it, you know, Jesus said that essentially in the judgment, God would take our standards and turn them around on us, and he would use them against us. Well, there's a good side to that, though. You know, Peter asked the question, do I need to uh, forgive my brother seven times? If my brother sins against me and I forgive him seven times, is that good enough? And Jesus said, no, it's not. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, verses 21 and 22, 70 times 7. Now, why did he say that? Because he's, that's the way God is toward us. If we, if we make mistakes and we come back to God and we confess them to him, 
and repent of them and ask him to forgive us, it doesn't matter how many times it is, he will do it. No matter how many times. So when we're not the kind of people that we ought to be, don't give up. Because God doesn't give up on us. He gives us the opportunity as, as long as there is breath in our body to repent of the sins that we've committed, confess them to him, and ask him to forgive us. And he's promised to do it, no matter how many times it is. Self-examination is a difficult thing to do. But when you think about it, and you think, well, I, I, I'm not exactly what I should be. You know, what lack do I have in my life? What do I need to correct? Don't do what the, the rich young ruler did when you find out and go away sorrowful. I mean, I, I think he, I really think he knew he had a problem. He just may not have known what it was or how bad it was. Jesus explained it to him, and it's like, I don't want to fix that. If it had been something else, maybe, but I've got a lot of money, and I don't want to give it up, and he wouldn't do it. You know, when we look at our own lives and we think, well, this is something I've got to fix, remember this. It's one of the things I've always liked to think about. Uh, the rich young ruler is described as a young man. Say he's maybe 20 years old. I think that's probably erring a little on the young side, but, but just assume for the, the sake of argument he's 20 years old. Say this is about 30 A.D., well, Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jewish economy was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's 40 years later. It wasn't that unusual for a man to live to the age of 60. So if this young man decided he was going to give up his soul in order to keep his money, you know, how long did he get to keep it? About 40 years. Short-term gain for long-term loss is a fool's bargain. If you find out there's something that you need to change in your life, you need to change it because it can cost you your soul, and that's eternity. You know, examine yourself, whether you're in the faith. Make such changes as you need to. Get whatever help you need to. But make sure you don't make a fool's bargain. Don't go away sorrowful like the rich young ruler did. It may be that there's someone here this, this afternoon that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized, have your sins washed away. Or it might be that you're an erring child of God. There's something that, that has come between you and the Lord. If that be the case, nobody else knows about it but you. Go to God in prayer. Confess the sin to him from a repentant heart and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or maybe you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, we ask that you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing.